I won't do it, but it seems that it would be fun for me to take a survey, an informal survey, and make you raise your hand to answer the following question. I don't want to embarrass you, so I won't ask you to raise your hand. But if I asked, who has ever gone to bed at night dreaming about winning the lottery, I don't think I'd be the only person with my hand up in the air. Now, maybe you'd be the really super spiritual person that would go to bed and go, I have never once thought about winning. I'm perfectly content with all that I have. Unless you think I'm just making fun of you, um, my wife and I went to an Amway meeting once. The, uh, some friends of ours got into this uh, multi-level marketing meeting, and, and they wanted us to kind of get into this. And if you're not familiar with these, there's, there's all sorts of them. You might sell Mary Kay, and then you have a bunch of people who sell Mary Kay under you, and... And those things are great, fine. They're just not our cup of tea. And one of the ways they kind of pull you into Amway is to have you sit on the front row uh, or sit somewhere near where the speaker in the shiny suit can come out and then probe your inner dreams. And so, you know, he's asking people around the room, what do you want to do with your life? And, of course, people are answering, I want to travel the world and I want to own a jet, all right? And so he makes a tactical error. He doesn't really know his audience, and he picks on the woman sitting directly next to me, my wife, Carolyn, who I have to tell you is the least needy person alive. This is a a real issue for us because I'm a guy who likes to be needed. And uh, as a married guy whose wife is not very needy, this can lead to some tension because I'm like, come on, woman, need me. And she's just like super-duper independent. She's also particularly oddly content. She was raised in a rather middle-class family, and because of the combination of her gifts and her talents and who she is, she just doesn't find herself, you know, dreaming about wealth. If I'm driving down the road, sometimes on a big, long trip, I'll say, hey, if somebody gave us a million dollars, what would you spend it on? And she always kind of rolls her eyes like the entire exercise is, oh, why do you do this? So this is my wife, all right? So the guy, and this, I promise you this is true. It wouldn't be valuable if it weren't. The Amway guy who's trying to sucker us into just dreaming about wanting stuff um, looks at my wife and he says, what is your dream house? And without skipping a beat, my wife Carolyn answers, the one I'm living in. And it ruined his whole presentation. <laughs> Because she's supposed to say a 10,000 square foot beach house and blah. And my wife, this is like our first house. She was like so jazzed about having this little 1,200 square foot house and had little kids in it. And, and so she really meant that was her house. Needless to say, her husband isn't like that. All right? Opposites attract. And I'd be one of those ones who went to bed thinking if I could just get this much money I could pleasure, I could see all these pleasures come my way. I could see all of these um, things happen that would give me joy. It would solve my problems. And then I get a piece of news. And the evidence to describe would, would lend itself to all of us to know that it probably won't work out that well for us. Before they won $2.76 million in a lottery jackpot, Laura and Robert Griffith hardly ever argued. They bought a million-dollar house and a Porsche. But six years after their win, 
Robert drove away in the Porsche after Laura confronted him over emails suggesting he was interested in another woman. Their 14-year marriage was over, and a freak fire gutted their house, and every penny of their fortune was gone. That's not a funny story, but it tends to sober me because this isn't the only one. The recent history of lottery winners who have ended up poor once again would tell us that most of us would have a difficult time becoming instantly wealthy. It would become for us the source of our life. It would begin to take over. It would begin to become the focus of everything we thought and did. This is essentially what we're talking about in this month's series here, LA's Four Big Idols. And I have to mention right away that I broke a a, a microphone last week, and so... uh, we're not going to be able to have the last week's sermon <laughs> um, available for you on the podcast. So I'm sorry if you missed it. We can sit down over coffee sometime and I'll review the notes with you. But today, we're talking about money as an idol. And uh, in the money category, what happens is, is so, so many times our hungry, our dying of thirst soul wants to know three really important things. We want to know we're valuable, and so we'll look to money to help us achieve a sort of status in the world. Uh, We also know that uh, we love when things go well, and we want to be at rest. And and so sometimes uh, solace is what we're longing for in our money. And and for those of you who aren't uh, people who go about doing Uh, crazy stuff with your money. If you're a shopaholic, this would fit the category there where you just say to yourself, I'll feel better if I can just go buy some things. For many of us, the the wealth that we could uh, assemble, small though it may be, would become a real place of security for us. You see, we we need these things. Our souls are hungry for these things. Uh, um, Security, solace, status. These things are important to us. And we foolishly think that if we can accumulate money, it's going to actually help satisfy those things. It pushes us to ask the question, what will fill our hearts? And for the Christian, if you are a Christian, the question becomes, can you trust what Jesus has to say about life? Jesus said in Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I tend to not think that would make sense to most. And most of the time, I may have to confess that in my life, there have been plenty of times where I thought I would have more joy if I just kept instead of gave to others. But there's at least one time a year where it becomes increasingly clear to me that this principle is real, and that's Christmas time. Particularly when my kids were little, I would buy them gifts, and then I would buy them gifts to give me. So there was not much joy in actually getting a present from them other than the fact that they were happy to give it to me. The greatest joy for me was watching them open their presents. There was something that was tremendous about that. There was, there was a joy that parents know, that it's fun to watch your little girl or your little guy open something and say thank you and just be so blown away by uh, the kindness or the gift that you've given so in those moments, I get a glimpse and I go, you know what, maybe, maybe it is better. Maybe there is more joy in giving than receiving. Unfortunately, 
that would not be the way most think. In his book, How Rich People Think, Steve Siebold misquotes a verse of the Bible, as did Gene Simmons, the bassist for the legendary rock band Kiss, in his interview with uh, Harold Rollins, or uh, uh, Henry Rollins, sorry, on television, uh, uh, he misquoted 1 Timothy 6.10.2. Both in the book and on TV with uh, Gene Simmons, they say that it is wrong to say that money is the root of all evil. And then they kind of attack 1 Timothy 6.10 as being a really poverty way of thinking. That money isn't the root of all evil. Poverty is the root of all evil. Well, the problem is, is they've misquoted 1 Timothy 6.10. It was read to you today. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money, like last week's discussion of ambition, is good. So how do broken people make a good thing into a bad thing? Or take something that's meant to provide for us and it becomes all of a sudden an ultimate thing. We're concerned about money about as much as Jesus is concerned about money. And for those of you who think that our church talks about money a lot, we hardly ever talk about it. Jesus talked about it a lot because it tells us a lot about ourselves. The old adage is, is you can tell what somebody's committed to by looking at their checkbook. And, and I would say, you know, on your credit card statement, if you categorize what you're spending on, it tells you where your heart is. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So, of course, Jesus, ultra and ultimately concerned about our hearts, is going to address our treasure. He's going to address that, and he's going to want us to think in terms of whether or not our money, our treasure, has taken the place of him to fill our lives. Now, it's not just Gene Simmons of KISS or get-rich-quick authors who are to blame here. Christian rock star televangelists and megachurch pastors around the country are often ones who will live in this way as to indicate to you and to me that we're not making it in life if we just don't have all this kind of stuff. Not a month goes by where I don't hear another story about a pastor, a preacher at a big church who may or may not embrace prosperity theology. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's basically a a, a, sl- a sliver of so-called Christianity where people believe that you can get rich if you'll just apply God's principles, and if you're not rich, it's because you're not applying God's principles and faith enough. But I've known and are seeing more and more pastors who are seemingly responsible theologically discovered to have lived in big mansions and driving big fancy cars. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it when ministers do it is it says without much, you know, unclarity that Jesus isn't enough. That I'm supposed to live by example, and if I have to have a Rolls and a 20,000-square-foot home, and I have to have a beach house on top of that, and I have to have suits that are tailor-made at 5000 bucks a pop, that doesn't tell the Christian, according to today's text, that the person is really experiencing Jesus. It's saying that that person finds more joy in keeping than giving. Now, do I know how much they give? No. But this is at the root of the problem. 
We want, if we want as a church, if we want as Christians, people to think that we really buy into this notion that Jesus and a relationship with him in this world is sufficient for this world, sufficient for our souls, we're going to have to talk about this. And really, so we get this idol of money discussed today from a passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul, the, the pastor to the Gentile Christians in the first century, is writing a letter to a young church planter. And I wish I were a young church planter. I'm a church planter. I, I felt better about this 15 years ago because I could say I was a young church planter like Timothy. But I'm not. I'm just a church planter like Timothy. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, in this world of religious thought, Christianity, and in our world of the church, there are going to come along people who are going to distort the word of God for profit. Now, I think that's amazing because we like to think, and many young Christians like to idolize the first century believers as if they didn't have any problems. And it's relatively clear that early on, people were taking advantage of faith in order to get wealthy. And we have a modern-day manifestation of that. And so I want to look at a couple of things from this passage that address us about the, the broader subject of how we will be able to fill this craving we have in our soul. And, and what the Apostle Paul does first is say that a conflation of money and faith will not result in gain. If your goal here is for ultimately there to be a gain in you, uh, something where you'd say, I want to do this, it's going to make me feel better. I want to do this, it's going to make me feel more secure. You want to gain security. You want to gain a sense of value. You want, you want to gain a peace or some type of comfort. One of the things he points out right away to Timothy is that if you try to meld together the notion that your faith is the means of gain, financially speaking, that somehow or another there's this there's this connection between your beliefs and how much money you can generate to, to satisfy your desires in any of these categories, that that would be a problem. And, and let me read the passage again, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depra uh, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So a couple things we've got to recognize right off the bat is that, that there is no fear in the Apostle Paul in saying that certain teaching is just false. Now there's a frightening thing in a, in a postmodern world in which we live, no one likes to say that person's just wrong. We have lost, in, particularly in Western society, we have lost the capacity to disagree with one another, to believe with some conviction that you're wrong, and to do it graciously. And so uh, oftentimes uh, people will just try to say in theory, uh, everybody is right, or we can't say anybody is wrong. Until they get on their hot button issue and then they'll call you out for being wrong. This is clearly not a problem with the Apostle Paul. And with the exception of people who are really, really wealthy in churches that teach that that is a sign of great faith. I don't know too many people who actually object to the thing, to the thought that teaching that 
finance, that faith is a means to financial gain is just wrong. It's false teaching. Well, the Apostle Paul says as much, so let's all rejoice today that we agree. All right, now if you're here from a Word of Faith church and you, and you, you drove up in a Jaguar and you, you know, and, and a brand new one, mind you and, and you, and you've got just a trail of wealth trailing behind you and you're offended by this, let me just say, I apologize. Uh, up front, if that offends you in some way. But the, the apostle would do no such thing. He would say, you conflate money and faith, you combine, you fuse, you bring together two things that are not related into a whole, and you have created a disaster for people's souls. Even in the first century, there were false Christians trying to take advantage of people, people of faith in particular, as a means to get wealthy. Interestingly enough, the same word, the same verb craves exists as it describes false teachers. They crave. It says, these false teachers, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy. So there's something in this false teacher that is saying, I just love it when we have these like really dissension-filled moments where I try to twist things and teach things. And why would that be? Because it's the means of life for this person. It not only provides financially, because if they can get you to give up more of your money, then what will happen is they will have more money. It's a pyramid scheme. It is a, it is a multi-level marketing strategy where I can get everybody at the bottom, regardless of how little money they have, to give over all their money, and then that stuff just flows up to the top of the pyramid. And so th- their life is contained in this. Physically, And in many ways, they love controversy because it gives them a sense of ownership and and, and authority and power. And and this would be an unhealthy characteristic. This isn't new either. Jesus pointed out this characteristic about the Pharisees. He said this in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, when he was talking to the disciples. He said, as he taught them, he said, watch out for the teachers of the law who like to walk around in their long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace, who choose the reserved seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts. They take advantage of widows and rob them of their homes and then make a show of saying long prayers. Their punishment will be all the worse. See, he's talking about even the the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And there is no gain in following these false teachers, even if it yields riches. You say, well, if it works then what's the problem? Well, the problem is is that wealth is temporary and your needs are both at the soul level and they are eternal in nature. Jesus also said in Mark Mark 8, 36 and 37, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? One of my favorite 70s bands, Kansas, wrote in their classic tune, Dust in the Wind, don't hang on, nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. You are dust in the wind. See, your money can't purchase what your soul longs for, and that is an eternal relationship with God. There's no amount of money that's going to stretch your life into eternity. You are going to pass away. And that's why it is dangerous for false teachers to come along and tell you, find your life in this stuff. It can't provide for you. The prosperity gospel, at its heart, at its biggest issue, at its core, is whether or not 
you and I would try to satisfy our sense of status and solace and security by virtue of temporary things, or if we'll rely on the Lord to provide real, eternal help for our souls. And like all idols, you don't know it's an idol until it's taken from you or asked for. And I have to make a quick caveat to make sure we have a biblical perspective on money and particularly on giving. Uh, This is the test for the Christian. We do have built into the Christian experience a means of discerning where our heart is. And as difficult as this is for guys like me to teach on, it's in the scripture and there's no way around it. Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Proverbs eleven twenty four, the King Solomon wrote, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You, you can tell, I can tell, whether or not we're trusting the Lord by simply obeying a simple principle, which is to bring him a tenth of what we have, the Bible calls it a tithe, in offering to him. It is a response to his grace, and what it does is it shows him where our hearts are. doesn't matter how much it is. It could be five cents. If you make $5 a week, or I guess it would be 50 cents a week, if you make, it doesn't matter what you make. The issue is our hearts, and we can tell, is my heart really in this? If you checked my visa, you're going to see a lot of gifts bought at the West Virginia University Mountaineer football store. And and if you talk to me at any length, you're going to go, this guy's not well. He talks about football way too much, and it seems like it's an idol to him. And it very well may be, I can get therapy if you'll pay for it. Okay, the issue though is, my heart is where my treasure is. And you cannot say, I'm a mature believer, but I hoard all my money. I don't give anything to church or charity. I'm a believer. I don't tithe. But I'm mature. That is an, that is an odd sentence. It's not true. I tell you, there are many things I threw away from my early charismatic church experiences, but I'm grateful that they built into my heart and soul a sense that regardless of whether or not I was a college student at West Virginia University, or whether or not I had a full-time job, that the first fruits of what I was supposed to do with my monthly paycheck was to bring tithes and offerings to the Lord. Micah chapter 3 verse 10 says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And this is what I want to make clear about giving. Generosity is the byproduct of faith, not the means to getting more security. We encourage, we challenge, if this is your home, we challenge you to tithe to your home church, to your home storehouse, so to speak. All right, But we don't in any way, shape, or form promise that God's blessing of your life, his caring for your life, his promise to provide and open up the windows of heaven is the gateway for you to live like a rock star. In fact, God's promised blessing that comes when we are good stewards of what he's given us in the first place is given to us so we can even be more generous. And this is seen in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And this is the verse I really want you to see that my prosperity gospel friends tend to leave out. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It is possible that God is waiting to blow out your world with millions of dollars if you'll be generous. But he's not giving you those millions so that you can live like a millionaire. He's giving those millions so that you can help people. So that you can be freakishly generous. We have set as a church, and we'll talk about this next month during Vision Month. But we've set as a church that our future will include being generous. And as the budget of our church increases, so will the amount of money that we give to missions and mercy that we give to outside of our church. We're saying if we don't do that now, if we don't give a percentage, a significant percentage of our budget now, we certainly won't do it when we have a lot of resources to distribute. Because you always find a way to keep it to yourself. William Bud Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, but was $1 million in debt within a year. Can you believe that? He said, I quote, I wish it never happened. It was totally a nightmare. A former girlfriend successfully sued him for a share of his winnings, and his brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him in the hopes that he'd inherit a share of the winnings. And after sinking money into various family businesses, Post sank into debt and spent time in jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. He now lives quietly on $450 a month in food stamps. Now, you and I always say, that wouldn't happen to me. I'm educated. I'm, I'm, I'm bright. I'm different. The point is, is that when you start to say, my heart needs this to live, if your life substantially changes by virtue of your financial position, then what happens is you start to begin to see what's really driving and feeding your soul. The, the first warning we get from Paul was that if we conflate money and faith, it will not result in gain. But Paul is concerned about you and I experiencing gain. So he's going to use the word gain again in concert with the word craving. Let me read the passage as we look at this point. A contentment of godliness and faith will be great gain. All right, so if, if a conflation of faith and, and money and faith will not result in gain. The, the, what will bring us gain is godliness and faith. The scriptures say in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves 
with many pangs. Twice in today's passage, we see craving. First, it's in verse 4 with the false teacher's craving for controversy. The second is verse 10, the soul's natural craving for something, something that would fill it. And instead of seeking God as it was created to crave, it instead sets itself to pursuing money. The craving for money inevitably leads you away from God because we're hungry and in his absence, we'll eat what's it's easiest to get its hands on. We had our first uh, community group uh, at the Houskins house this past Friday. And uh, I ate very healthy. I had two pieces of chicken, and I'm on the Atkins diet. I had no carbohydrates whatsoever. Until Lori put a bowl of M&M's right in front of me. And then I couldn't stop eating them. Once I ate one, I craved more. Once I ate a second, I craved even more. It's crazy for those of us who are carb addicts. Once you get going, there is no stopping that train. And, and, and this is what the, the verb to crave with regards to our soul is. Our souls are hungry. And we will grab what's closest to us. And for some of us, we will have the misfortune of having great fortune. Because that great fortune will be a constant temptation to grab and feed on as opposed to God. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician, a physicist, an inventor, a writer, and he happened to be a great Christian philosopher. He said this, you may have heard this before and not known who was the source of it. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. Why? Why can the God-shaped vacuum not be satisfied by money? Well, if you look at status and you say, I have money and I have status, but the, the only thing that status is rooted in is our own pride. We're just proud because we have more than we, that others have. As we talked last week, C.S. Lewis says, we, we're only proud compared to how much other people have wealth. And guess what? There's always going to be somebody with more money than you. There's always going to be somebody with a bigger house, a nicer car, a, a vacation home that's more spacious than yours. What are you dreaming of? There's always somebody that actually has more than you can even dream of. We talk about solace and the need for peace. And you think, hey, no, I'm just going to go buy some things. This will make me feel better if I can just buy this. I'm going to walk them all, credit card in hand, and just start swiping away. And temporarily, you start to think, oh, I'm, my, my spirits have have been raised, but like a strong narcotic when the numbness wears off of the new purchase, that system is going to need another jolt. You're going to need more stuff. You're going to need to buy stuff, and then you're going to start ringing up the credit card into like ridiculous levels of debt. And the next thing you know, you're going to max out all the cards you could conceivably max out because you're filling your soul. You're trying to make yourself feel less pain or less worry or less anxiety by purchasing things. It can't satisfy you. Money can't bring solace. And it certainly can't bring security. Money can be stolen. Every week you hear about this amazing financial centers that are getting breached uh, by online criminals. Money can be lost. Money can be mismanaged. And the nature of money is unstable. Your value, the value of your 401k 
is worth more this week than it was worth last week because the market's going up. But guess what? In a heartbeat, that market can go down. And you're saying, as I would foolishly say from time to time, I'm going to build my security on this foundation of my wealth. When in reality, that wealth could disappear because of nothing you've ever done. Completely out of your control. Vaporized. Gone. That's the nature. And that's why God says, you can't find contentment. You can't find solace or status or security. You can't find any of that in money because money doesn't have the ability to provide it. Jesus says this, and interestingly enough, in Matthew 6, the language is purposefully sort of replicated by the Apostle Paul in verse 7 of our text. In verse 7 of our text, Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these things. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 25 through 27. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Friends, let me tell you from my own experience, I have not ever had a lot of money, but I have hoarded the little I have. We hoard our things. We cheat on our taxes. We don't give the charity or church because we don't realize, we don't know, or we don't believe how valuable we are to Jesus. Hence, when we look at repenting or turning from our cheapness, or from our lack of generosity. It can't just be, okay, I'm going to start giving to church. Or, okay, I'm going to start helping out homeless people from time to time instead of looking the other way. The, the, the thing that we all need to think about is there's something that's keeping me out of really enjoying my status as a daughter or son of Christ. There's something that my soul isn't satisfied in that place. I am looking to other things, my job, my status, my security. I'm looking to money to fill that. I'm, I'm looking to these things instead of saying, God, today, I want to find peace in knowing that I'm your beloved child. You take care of birds. I'm more valuable than birds. Instead of going to bed dreaming about winning the lottery or having more money than King Solomon or Bill Gates in our era, we need to say, Jesus, my hope is that you have provided for me. This is the biblical perspective on money. It's not a bad thing. But when you cease to see it as a gift from God to be dispensed for God on the things that make God happy, then it becomes a problem. When it becomes the source of your life, it becomes a problem. I mentioned King Solomon. Recently, a, a study group, and people have a lot of time on their hands, uh, they tried to calculate what King Solomon's net worth would be today. And it turns out that based on biblical accounts of his wealth, he would have a net worth three times that of Bill Gates. He would be worth $100 billion today. The richest man in the world, Solomon. Yet this man of God, who wrote a handful of books of the Bible, some Christians have even lifted him up as an example of how God wants you to be wealthy. See? Look at all the stuff Solomon had. He was wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. 
he testified that believers potentially would be miserable in their wealth. He says this in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 and 11. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. In 2004, Sharon Tirabasi, a single mother who'd been on welfare, cashed a check from the lottery for $10 million. She subsequently spent her winnings on a big house, fancy cars, designer clothes, lavish parties, exotic trips, and mostly handouts to family, loans, and to friends. And in less than a decade, she's back on the bus working part-time and living in a rented house. What she discovered, what Solomon knows is the more stuff you have, the more people are going to want to take your stuff. The more stuff you have, the more tempted you're going to be to rely on that instead of God. And it's meaningless. And it's not just God's word. We're talking about the life experience of a historical figure looking to you and to me and saying, can you trust that the life that God would provide for you, his presence in your soul is enough. And that's what I'd like to pray that we'd be able to do today. That we would, as we celebrate communion, as we spend our week together, walking through life together as a church, that Jesus would become all that we need. And that would turn us into a group of people who could radically shape our world through our generous distribution of our resources to others. But it starts with you and me knowing that we're valuable to God. We will never find the wherewithal to be generous towards others unless you and I can get in a place where we really know God. And before you say, oh, I really know God, I would say, well, let me see your credit card statement. Do other people benefit from your wealth? Do other people benefit from your life? Or has your money become like it has for so many in this fair city of ours, an idol. Let us pray together. Father, today we are humbled that you care enough about us to tell us the truth that uh, money and the pursuit of it will ultimately lead to despair because it will never satisfy the craving we have in our soul, a craving that is really for you. Uh, Father, there's no way we can manufacture an experience with you that would um, satisfy our soul. That has to be genuine and it has to come from you. Otherwise, we will continue to try to stuff our possessions and our wealth into these categories that you've said you want to be our source of peace and solace and you want to be our source of a strength and security and you, you want to be all of that for us especially in the category of status. You want us to find our value and feel loved and appreciated because of who we've been made to be for you. So I pray that you'd work powerfully in our souls to liberate us from something that would be a gift that you've given us that's turned into something that is harming our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.